Thanks for joining us here at Faith Assembly for our weekly podcast. We're so excited you're tuning in this week. To learn more about our church, you can visit us online at myfaithassembly.org. Join us live or connect with us on Facebook. 2 Samuel chapter 6 is where we are, and uh, we've been talking um, in this, this series called Triggered, Moved by What We See, and If We Don't See Properly, We Won't Respond Properly. And um, so I want to continue that today, looking specifically at a lens that we looked through. And uh, we're going to look at a story of David, and he needed a redo. How many are grateful that God gives us redos? He gives us another chance, another shot. Uh, Anybody out here who's walking in your second, third, fourth, fifth opportunity, right? The grace of God. Come on, it's the goodness of the Lord. And so uh, we're going to look at this this story here uh, today. And uh, I I should start off by letting you know, a couple weeks I shared with you, uh, Jody sent me a picture of a bear, and it was in this small picture, blew it up. Uh, she was determined she's going to find this thing if it's in our backyard. And uh, this past week, uh, ladies and gentlemen, once again, she was successful because everything my wife sets out to do, she accomplishes. She found this thing on, uh, I'd like to say it was a team effort, you know, but she gets all the credit because it was her idea. Um, but uh, uh, she found this thing in the backyard. Yeah, there it is. And you're not impressed. That's okay. Go to the next slide. Uh, we're going to talk about being triggered. Um, uh, so someone, there, there's someone who hunts, and they said that's a good-sized bear. I don't know. So uh, all I know is it doesn't belong there. That's the only thing that I know. Second Samuel chapter 6, uh, why don't we stand? And I just want to look at three verses, and we will, uh, we will look at the entire chapter in its context, but I want to just read these verses here as we uh, uh, get started to set us up. Then King David was told the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's house and everything he has because the ark of God. So David went there to bring and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. Notice not just a celebration, it was a great celebration. In this translation, if you read the first time, because he needed a redo, and we'll map all that out, they celebrated, but this time it was a great celebration. There's a, a reason for that. So they had a great celebration, verse 13. This is what I want to focus on, these next two verses. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf, and David danced before the Lord with all of his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. Uh, Again, emphasizing that they had a great celebration. They made a sacrifice after the sixth step. David danced with all of his might. And he danced with a priestly garment on. Not his king's robes, but his priestly garment. God, I pray that you would help our worship to rise to another level. That, God, we would, we would be triggered in our worship in whatever we walk through. That, God, worship would pour out of us in every season. God, in our highs, our lows, whatever it is, that, Lord, worship would be the trigger of everything that comes out. That, Lord, we would... We would we would just speak of your goodness, of your glory, because we know that you're a God that even when we can't see you, even when we can't feel it, we know you're still working, and we worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name, and if you want your worship to reach to a new level, why don't you say amen? Amen. And uh, if you don't, just say to somebody, that's for you. Don't do that. That would not be. <laughs> you may be seated this morning. Um, I, I want to I share from a title today. Um, simply this, let the wheels come off. I know someone is like, hold up, that's 
dangerous, that's crazy, that's destructive. You know, this idea, the whole, the whole thing of, of the wheels coming off, it, it, we realize it means to kind of go rogue or to, or, or to go off the rails or, or even destruction. But uh, the idea of the, the wheels coming off, I want to I share from that, that title uh, this morning, just because as I was preparing for this sermon, um, the Lord reminded me two weeks ago in my prayer journal, I had written just what I felt the Lord say to me, those words in, in prayer, let the wheels come off. And uh, I knew even saying that was kind of like, um, that's dangerous, but I knew what God was saying to me, and this is me, um, because God was saying, let the wheels come off so you can soar. Uh, I'm the guy that likes to have details. Anybody else? I like to know five to 10 steps ahead before I even take the one, the first step. How many know sometimes in trusting God, you just need the one step and you got to step out on that one? And that feels like taking the wheels off or letting the wheels off. And so I knew what the Lord was saying to me, but as I was looking at this, this scripture, and we'll give the context to it as to David, as he's worshiping, bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, I, I just felt the Lord say it's time for us to uh, let the, the wheels off when it comes to our worship. I, I was going to uh, title this, in fact, all the way to uh, Thursday, the title of this was going to be See Something, Say Something, because I knew we were supposed to talk about worship, and that in this triggered series that, that God was, you know, just a, a time for us to really evaluate and say, hey, we need to be people that whatever we walk through, we're triggered by worship, that, that, or not by worship, but, but when we get triggered, worship becomes the, the outflow of who we are. And that was the, the heart of this and, and recognizing that that was uh, something we were, we were going to, to talk about. But as I was uh, just looking this and being reminded what the Lord spoke to me, I, we recognize that worship needs to be a, a part of our lives, but worship should not just be a part of our lives. We need to let worship push the boundaries in our lives that worship needs to push us. Worship is not just the response, but it's what moves us. And sometimes being moved, worship needs to move us into new territories. Worship needs to move us into new places. That in our, in our worship, there's this, this moving and expanding. Worship needs to not just exist, but it needs to have all of us and even moving us into new territories. And worship becomes immersive when it becomes all of who we are. Um, my family last Christmas, we bought a, one of the new gaming units. I don't even know which one it is because, uh, I don't play it. Um, uh, so we bought one for the family. Kind of interesting for Jordan. Uh, the other two left and moved away. And so Jordan has it all to herself, but Hey, it was a family gift and uh, works out for her. Uh, but with it were the, this, uh, this game with VR, the virtual reality goggles. And I think the, the game is called lightsaber. And so it's music that plays and you put these goggles on. And when you put these goggles on, you then have these controllers that you respond to, to slice these boxes with these things. And so it's a game. And so they put these goggles on. I've tried it. It's just not fun to me. And probably because I'm no good at it. You know, usually something you don't like it if you're not good at it, right? But if you're good at it, you're like, that's the best game ever. Uh, so it's not a good game to me. So it means I'm not good at it. And so uh, this whole idea, they put these this, these goggles on, and it changes their whole, their whole perspective. Now, here's the picture of this. I have sat in the family room and watched them play this game. They've got this big device on their head. They look a little weird. They've got controllers in their, their hands, and they're now doing these motions in the middle of the living room. And quite honestly, they look weird. I mean, I'm looking at them, and I'm like, if you only knew what a fool you look like right now. I mean, you're you're going, oh, you're doing this whole thing. You just look a fool right now, but how many realize that the lens they're looking through has a whole different perspective? 
The lens they're looking through is, no, I'm responding to this that I see and the very thing that someone else doesn't recognize. They see that there is, there is worship that will make you and I peculiar. There's a reason why the Bible says the peace that passes all understanding, that in the presence of God, in worship, you can receive a peace that doesn't make sense, that the world looks at you when you're going through what you're going through, and the world says, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem normal. Why? Because we have a whole different lens. Oh, that we would wear a lens and the, that worship would be a lens. Worship is not performance or an act. Worship is a lens and the means by which we see the whole world. That when we have worship, it becomes the, the lens of, of how we see the, the world that is around us. Worship is recognition of something worth our time, energy, and effort. Worship is the recognition of something worth our time, energy, and effort. Every single person is a worshiper. Now, what we've done is we've, we've uh, Christianized the, the whole word of worship um, and sanctified it. And it's proper because it does speak to God. But God is not the God is the only one that we worship, but how many know we also give time and energy to other stuff? You give your time and your energy to your job. So it doesn't work for us to say there's worship and then the rest of my life. No, that's the air. Worship is all of my life. Okay, so it's the lens of everything, how I see. You want to come give me a hug, don't you? I'm talking to Ava, not to Leah. People are like, what the? <laughs> it's Ava and I have this thing. She always loves to give me a hug. Leave me later, okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I embarrass her now in front of everybody. Uh, uh, and we have this lens that we see everything, that we allow this, this, this worship to be expressive. And so what if the way we see not just portions of our life, not just when we're in church, but worship is everything. My marriage, I have to see through the lens of worship. Raising my kids through the lens of worship. Um, leading this church, being a neighbor, whatever, everything that I do is through the lens of worship. And it becomes all of, of what we are. And the question that we recognize is that there's always something worth our time, energy, and effort. And so my time, energy, and effort, I give my time and energy and effort to other things. But everything I do is unto God, which makes everything worship. That is so important to catch because if we would go to our jobs like worshipers, if we would have the lens of this is worship unto God, this, the way I'm treating my wife is worship unto God. But sometimes it looks foolish. It looks, you know, you look odd. And, and in a world, let's be honest, to honor in, in, in the, some of the context of our world, to honor our spouse the way they should be honored is in our world today, sometimes odd. It's stupid to me that we make marital affairs look better on TV and culture than we do sacred, real, God-honoring marriages. It's just because we, we're gonna look weird if we do things the way that honor God. It's gonna look weird to have certain not just expectations, but way that we, that we do the things that we do because everything we do is through the lens of worship. It's what we look through. That when we, when we look through these lens, it affects everything that we do. First Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18, Paul says to the church, always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Notice how definitive those three words are that have to connect with our worship or with the will of God in our lives. Always, never, and all. 
How many know you can't dissect those and ask, okay, well, did Paul mean these circumstances? Is this what he meant when he used? No, these are, these are words that they're not just contextual. So it's not just a circumstantial thing. There are other places we have to put it in context of things that are written in the Bible. We have to put it in context to the era and to the people that he's talking to. But this one is not a contextual thing that you have to just put in a certain circumstance. In all circumstances. Okay. So there's this worship that should be something that is all around us. And David recognized this. He was a worshiper. And so I could talk today about, hey, see something, say something. I hope that we would be worshipers and always worshipers. But as I studied this and really looked at David, I saw this, this difference of how David worshiped the first time he brought the ark and the second time. David was always known as a worshiper. He's known after a man after God's own heart. And the reason that is because he was so tender in worship. You see, before David was ever the king of Israel, before he was the Goliath giant slayer, before he was the one that the, the people would sing about, and mostly the ladies would sing about, he has killed tens of thousands and write songs about how great David was. Before he was any of that, he was a worshiper in his father's field, watching after his father's sheep. He would be in the place with his father's sheep with a harp, a bunch of sheep, and the skies. The songs that he would sing, the only people who heard them were God and the sheep. There was no one to say that was such a beautiful song, you should sing it again. Because he didn't sing it for somebody to say that was a beautiful song, you should sing it again. He sang it because it was an overflow and he had a lens that when he looked at the skies, he saw the greatness of his God. When he felt rejected because all the other sons got called in to be considered and he got sent away because likely he was an illegitimate son. He didn't have all the status and the clamor and all the stuff around. And he's out in the middle of nowhere. And he didn't even sit out there and say, woe is me. But he said, oh, how awesome is my God. And how worthy is he of praise. Worship began to be the lens that he saw through. David, of course, even though he saw with worship, he needed corrective lenses at times. He needed a correction. Even when he, when he sinned with Bathsheba, the Lord still, his heart was so tender because when he was confronted by Nathan and said, against the Lord, you've sinned. You're the man who did this. And David, in humility and repentance, says, against you and you only have I sinned, O God. His heart was so repentant. He didn't say, well, you know other people have done, or you know that I did this, or it was their fault. If I would have gotten this attention, if I would have had this. No, David before God said, I have sinned against you and you only. There was a repentive heart and there was such a tenderness. Why was that heart tendered? Because it was saturated in the presence of God and in worship. And when we're saturated in the presence of God, it doesn't always mean that we're perfect, but it means we're responsive. That we respond to the leading, to the working of, of the Holy Spirit. David saw everything he saw different than the world that, that was around him. And he had a sensitivity to the presence of God. An example of this would be that when he did, as a young boy, come to fight Goliath, he shows up and there's Goliath on a mountain, on a, hill, uh, a hillside, and shouting to Israel saying, send out a warrior to fight me, and whoever wins, you'll be, will be slaves of, of, of each other's army, whoever wins. And uh, all these days, Israel hears this, and all of Israel is threatened by the words of Goliath. David comes, and David has a different lens. David doesn't ignore the threat. He hears it and acknowledges the threat. But David doesn't say, oh, look, a threat. David says, who are you to speak threats against the Lord our God? 
that he is greater. The Lord will deliver you this very day. Why could he talk with such, with, with such, I mean, come on, talk about let the wheels fall off. Hey, little David, 13 years old, you're going to go out and say to this, this giant who is, who is over 10 feet tall, who is saying, I'm going to kill you. I've killed everybody else. I'm going to kill you. And David says, you shouldn't even talk like that because God's going to take you down this day and God's going to deliver you into my hands. How could David say that? Because he knew how big his God was. It was the God that when he would be in the place all alone and he just had the responsibility of taking care of his father's sheep and he worshiped, he knew that God gave him grace and strength that even if a bear and a lion came to attack his father's sheep, that he was so dedicated to his father that God gave him the ability and the strength to defeat or to take down lions and bears and to take, them, take sheep out of the lions and bears' mouth. David recognized, this is not how good I am. This is the grace of God upon me. And if the grace of God is upon me to do that for my father's sheep, then the grace of God is upon me to do this for all of Israel because these sheep belong to God. He knew how big his God was. He didn't, he, he didn't come to the place and say, man, I don't know what we're going to be able to do. He's saying, no, this is a bigger giant. This is bigger than a bear and bigger than a, than a lion. But God gave me grace and his grace upon me through worship. I saw how big my God is. And now I'm standing again, and the world sees a threat, but I see you're nothing compared to how big my God is. Here's the question. How big is our God? How big is the God that we serve? Because listen, the more you look at Jesus, the bigger he gets, and the bigger he gets, the more worship he deserves. Your worship is connected by what you stare at, by what you look at, by what gets your attention. And then in our worship, that it would be responsive to worship and giving acknowledgement that we would be people triggered by worship unto God. Here is David. He becomes the king of Israel. First thing he does is king of Israel. I mean, what do you do? You've just been made the king. You're second. In the second king, you're not from a line of kings. You're appointed by God. Isn't it good that God doesn't need you to be from a line of people? He just needs you to be from his, from the call of God. He doesn't need you to have a reputation. You don't need to have a background. David had never been king before. He'd been shepherd. He'd been warrior. He's worshiper. And God places him as king. And so David does what the king would do, and, and he knew that, that, that the kingdom of God was going to be set up in Jerusalem. One of the first things he does is he defeats the Jebusites. That's the place of Jerusalem, which represents Mount Carmel, all the way back, the promises that were given to Abraham, that God would give promises. In the place of sacrifice, he was going to sacrifice uh, his son Isaac. And so there's significance in this mountain. Not only is it significance in the mountain, but David knew that's the spot that if you want to be protected and nothing come and get you because you're on a cliff and you're on a place of protection, that's the spot to go. So David built his kingdom in Jerusalem. It was ideal for his situation, but how many know it was the divine call of God from the very beginning? And so David does what, what, what he knew to do. He sets up his kingdom, sets up Jerusalem, and then he says, hey, he calls 30,000 of the troops to come around and say, I think it's time for us to bring the Ark of the Covenant from Abinadab's house and bring it to Jerusalem. It belongs to the people, and it's the presence of God. We need the presence of God. Everybody's like, yeah, that's what you should do. Let's do that. And so he makes the decision to go get the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the significance of the Ark of the Covenant is it represents the presence of God. Now, today, we don't have the Ark of the Covenant. Today, we have the power of the Holy Spirit that lives on the inside of us. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, resurrection, and ascension, we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit that now dwells in each and every one of us. And so the Spirit of God dwells in, in, in us, and so we commune with God through his Spirit. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, Paul says, is on the inside of us. But before the crucifixion, before Jesus, 
They, they connected with God through the Ark of the Covenant and not they, just the priests on behalf of the people. Only certain people could be in the presence of God around the Ark of the Covenant and it was a, it was a, a, a sacred place. It was a box that, that was a wooden box, had poles, and on the inside was the, the uh, stones that were carved out by Moses with the Ten Commandments. It was also a jar of, of, um, uh, of manna that they collected from the wilderness when they traveled, and also Aaron's staff that budded, which represents the resurrection. All of these are pictures of Jesus. And so Jesus has always been from the very beginning. And so they are acknowledging the presence of God, and they wanted the presence of God to be near because they knew that they're just like everybody else without the presence of God. Can I say that to you and I? We are just like everybody else without the presence of God. The only thing that sets us apart is not because we go to church, not because we, we're, we're, quote, Christians, but because the Spirit of God is upon our lives. That's the only thing that sets us apart. We're just like everyone else in the world, and we are except for the presence of God. They knew this because Moses said, unless your presence goes before us, I'm not leaving this place because it's your presence that sets us apart from every other people. And so they knew all the way through, we need the presence of God. And so they make the decision, David's king, next thing I do, I set up the kingdom, now let's go get the presence of God, the place of worship, and let's bring this to the place because we want God's presence here among the people. So David goes to get the Ark of the Covenant the way he saw it done. And what he remembers the last time they moved the Ark of the Covenant was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, the way it came to Abinadab's house was that it was captured by the Philistines. The Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant because the Philistines knew these small remnant of a people that's hardly a nation have more power and they recognize it's the presence of their God that gives them power. So the Philistines are like, let's capture their God. Oh, don't think my God is just in a box. Let's get their God. And so they captured the Ark of the Covenant. They took it to, their, to Assyria, to the place that they are, and they put it in, in the, their temple, of, of the, the Philistines' temple. It's a temple to Dagon, who is their main god. They collected other gods because they believe there's many gods, but this Dagon is their big god. Dagon. Yep, Dagon it. That's a, that was their main god. And uh, some of us have a God like that, Dagon it. <laughs> Dagon is their main God. And so they put the Ark of the Covenant into the, the temple with Dagon, and when they, they come the next day, they find Dagon, the, 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 the god that is, you know, by the way, made out of stone, right, carved, man-made. The god that is an idol that they made was now laying on his face, and they're like, oh, he must have fell through the night. I don't know what happened. They put him back up. The next day, they find their main god on his face again. He fell. How many know? Because the presence of the almighty God, the power of God. And so they are like, get this guy out of here. Get this, get this thing out of here. And so they're like, we, go, we don't want anything to do with this because our god keeps falling down to that box, uh, to this rep what represents their god. So get it out of here. So their decision was, hey, put it on an ox cart. So they, they get an ox, they put a cart, put the box on the cart, they smack the backside of that ox and just send it off in the direction of Israel. That ox, 20 years before David is king, ends up at Abinadab's house. Abinadab is priest, he can take care of this. And so he's kept the Ark of the Covenant that's there. It's interesting that Saul never went to go get it because the presence of God didn't matter that much. But David knew, we're going to do things different. We're going to go after the ark. But he didn't inquire of the Lord. And so he just did what he saw done. Because that's how they used to move things in the, 
those days. So he went and got the ox and a cart, and they put the ox or the, the, the Ark of the Covenant on an ox cart and began to travel. Now they're celebrating. They're celebrating the presence of God is coming back to Jerusalem. And they begin to celebrate, but all of a sudden the, the cart and the ox go across Nahor's threshing floor. Now the threshing floor would have been the high point, and it was the place that was established with stones because that's where they would go to beat the wheat so that the chaff would blow away on the top of the mountain and then the, the heavy stuff that is wheat would fall. And that's how they made their bread. That's how they would plant. That's how they lived because it had to go through the threshing floor. Can I tell you the presence of God that you carry will always have to go through the, the threshing floor. Sometimes you go with the presence of God and you're gonna go through tough places. How many have found out that the presence of God isn't meant to keep you from tough places but to give you grace to get through the tough places? So the presence of God went through the threshing floor. Here's the significant thing. Jesus, the ultimate presence of God, went through the threshing floor on Mount, on, on, uh, Mount Calvary when he died and he was beaten, his body broken. But how many are grateful that he not only went through, he did not stumble, but three days later he rose again and became our ultimate deliverer and victory because the presence of God goes through the threshing floor. And so the, this ark or the, the cart is going across the threshing floor. The Bible says that the ox stumbles. And so Uzzah, who is one of the sons of Abinadab, is traveling along because Uzzah and his, and his brother Ohio, they grew up around this ark. You know, 20 years it's been at dad's house. And so for 20 years they've been around it. And so here is Uzzah guarding the ark or, 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 or guiding the, the cart. When he sees the ox stumble, Uzzah reaches out to, to steady the ark of the covenant. Now you can read this all in chapter 6. We only looked at three verses. I would encourage you, it wouldn't take long to read all of chapter 6. He reaches out and touches the ark, and when he touches the presence of God, the Bible says he fell dead in that spot. He dies. David responds like all of us. And David is like, God, what is up with that? He was just trying to help. That he was just reaching out, and you would strike him dead. And David says, there's no way I can bring the ark into, into Jerusalem Send it to, so it went to Obed-Edom's house. David is angry. He's bothered. Why would God let this happen? Why would God allow this to take place? And so David has this separation. And he's like, I can't even, who am I? I can't even bring it in. There's no way we can bring the Ark of the Covenant. And so three months later, David is in Jerusalem. And he gets word. Hey, the last three months, Obed-Edom has had the best crops. Things are flowing in his place. And David is like, do tell. David didn't have to investigate. David knew. He's a worshiper. And David knew that blessing is not a coincidence. That blessing is connected to the presence of God. And David said, come on. We got to get the presence of God in this place. So David said, we're going back to get it. This time, he didn't ask the troops if they think we should. This time, he inquired of the Lord. Amen. And when he inquired of the Lord, let me just say, it's always wisdom that when you get triggered, don't just respond. Inquire of the Lord. Don't just throw that thing on a cart and just walk through and get shaken up all over the place. Don't just respond. Inquire of the Lord. And as they required of the Lord, David recognized, wait a minute, the Philistines weren't the last ones. They were the last ones to move this. But we don't do things the way the world does things. We don't do things the way the world does things. And even the world did that in a quote, godly, not godly, but a godlike manner. It was somewhat connected. Here's why. Because he went all the way back to Moses, and in Deuteronomy, they told them how to move the ark. 
Now, the ark was not just moved by itself. It was also moved with the entire tent of meetings or the, the, the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place of God's presence where they would meet with God, and it was literally like a big tent, and it was in the wilderness. How many know when they lived in the wilderness, they would go from place to place, and if you're going from place to place, you need to be able to pack up camp and take it to the next place. And so there were the Levites in charge of packing up the tabernacle. And the tabernacle had three main Levites that would take care of it. The first group took care of the poles. They carried all the the, the wooden structure and the things that held the tent together. You know, because if you have a tent, you got to have a structure. Then the second group took care of the skins that covered and the curtains that separated. They took care of all the skins. The, 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 uh, uh, it would have been sheepskin and, and, and the skin that they used to cover the tent. That was the canvas. And then the third group of Levites, they were the Levites who were in charge of carrying the sacred furniture, the, the furnishings, like the Ark of the Covenant and the lampstands and these things. Now, Moses made a decision because they said this is a lot to move. And so what Moses did, Moses said, and they made the decision that for the people carrying the poles and carrying the, the, the skins, we're gonna give them ox carts and they'll get to carry that stuff with the ox carts. But the Levites who are carrying the presence of God and the sacred things of God, that doesn't go on an ox cart. That goes on their shoulders. And so their job was to carry it on their shoulders and this is the difference. The second time they carried on the shoulders, and this is what we just read that David celebrated. He sacrificed. He danced with all of his might. And he did so in his priestly garment. What was the difference between the first one and the second one? Well, the simple thing is this. The first one, they let the, they let the wheels off. The first one, they used an ox cart with wheels, and the second one, they carried it on their shoulders. I want to just give you the distinction of these two things because they celebrated in both places. In the New Living Translation that, we, that, that I read from, it says in the first part, when they brought it on the ox cart, they celebrated. But when they brought it on the shoulders, they celebrated greatly. You say, well, does it just mean they did it more? No, there's a, there's a distinction of those root words. The first one, when they brought it in the first time, Here's what that word celebrate means. It's the word that we get things like playful fun. It's where we get the idea of kids playing. Or another word that they use to describe this root word of celebrating is playful fun or sport or how about this one, mockery. Now, it could be mockery to make fun of something, but usually mockery in the, in the line of play means this, where kids that would pretend, how many know kids play dress up? And when kids play dress up, they pretend to be something that's not real. And in this regard, David worshiped and he celebrated. But what he did was he just went through the motions without the meaning and what was really connected to why he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant. All he knew was, well, that's what we do. We need the presence of God. I'm the king. I'm going to go get it. and We're going to bring it. Oh, it's more than just routine and ritual. There's a connection to it. And so, David, you can't just treat it like anything. But the second time he celebrated greatly, the word here means with pleasure and great delight. That this is joy or celebration with pleasure and great delight and honor. There is this distinction. Here, here's the, the, the distinction I, I want us to see in really asking the question today. Is our worship mechanical ritual or is it pleasurable sacrifice? There's a difference between 
the two. That when we, when we worship with allowing the, the wheels to come off, it comes to a place that we allow a sacrifice. What if, if our worship is different? And here's the, the difference with it is when we let the wheels off, we respond to things differently. When you have the cart and you're pulling the cart, how many know that cart felt every bump and every vibration? You know when, you're, when your car doesn't have good suspension and the shocks, you feel every bump and every, every vibration because it's moved by what you go through. But when we carry worship properly, it doesn't respond to what we go through. It sits on our shoulders and it allows us to recognize whatever we walk through, we have something greater in the midst of whatever we're walking, that we have something far greater, far powerful, far more than what we're carrying in that moment, that it's affected by. I, uh, I'm a soda drinker. Um, people have tried to deliver me of that, and uh, I don't want to. Anyway, um, let's be honest, right? You don't because you don't want to. We said that before, and uh, I don't want to. Uh, but I've got a habit. I'm a soda drinker, and uh, the, um, I like fountain soda, and I have now out of habit in my car when I know that there are bumps or I'm on gravel road or something bumpy, I will pick the soda up and I will hold it so that it doesn't get shaken. Because if the soda gets shaken, it's flat and flat soda, shaken soda doesn't taste the same as fresh soda. And you're looking at me and you're like, you're a weirdo. <laughs> and you know what I'd say back to you? You don't know what I can taste. You don't know what I've tasted. I can taste the difference, we were in Alaska and, and, uh, in Nome and uh, with Austin Jones and this is that trip with uh, Kyle Dross and we were setting up a youth ministry there and, and Nome is in the, the wilderness. Nome is the only village and area there that has roads and the only reason they have roads is because the large gold boom back in the uh, 1800s and, and even after that uh, as they were, they were mining and so there's some road system through there, a lot of gravel. And I bought a soda at the gas station, which the only gas station in town. And uh, they had a fountain soda. I got excited. I'm like, I'm in the middle of Nome, Alaska, in the wilderness, and they have a, they have a fountain soda. It was disgusting. Um, but anyway, just out of habit, we're in the car, and we're driving on gravel. It, we got to a gravel road to go out to one of these places. And out of habit, I just picked up my soda out of the cup holder, and I'm holding it there. Austin looked at me, and he said, what are you doing? Jody answers for me because <laughs> Jody likes to explain how weird I am. Uh, Jody says he doesn't like when his soda gets shaken up because it tastes different when it gets shaken. He looked at me and he said, you got problems. <laughs> to which I looked back and said, yeah, but I know what I can taste. I wonder if our worship would get carried different to a place that people might say, you're peculiar. You're different. You're a Pentecostal. <laughs> You're crazy. But I wonder if our response is, yeah, but when you taste and see what I've tasted, you know you don't carry this like any ordinary thing. You don't carry this like ordinary stuff. You don't carry this like just something else. This is the presence. When you've experienced what I've experienced, I might get a little louder, not because I'm crazy, but because what's on the inside of me is so great. And I might lift my hands. You might say, well, he looks like a fool because he's lifting his hands. And we're, oh, you don't know that what God has done and what he's turned in my life and the circumstance and situation, I have tasted and seen how good he is. And I know how good he tastes that I can't carry it normal and let it be affected by anything. 
anything in this world. I can't just let it go through the bumps. I hold it in a place that it's greater than the bumps. I'm going to hit the bumps, but this worship I have, it's not going to change because of what I'm going through. I'm holding this in a place that no matter what it is, that when you taste of something so good, you can call me a weirdo for drinking soda the way I drink it. I mean, some of the office, they'll make fun of me. They're like, okay, PJ, some of them call me PJ, uh, for Pastor Jason. I'm like, what is that about? Because someone said one time, why are they calling you PJ? I'm like, that's my name. And I, oh yeah, that's why they call me. From my youth pastor days, they call me PJ. They're like, PJ, where's the best place to have soda? And then they'll just laugh at me because I will tell them, like, you asked. I'll tell you the places that have good soda and some of the reasons why they have good soda. I, I, I don't like worship it, but I enjoy what I enjoy. You drink your coffee and you're a snob about it, let me go. I got my soda, all right? I mean, that's just, you know, I said one time to Jody, I said, hey, why do you have to get coffee? I'm getting tire changed over here. They got free coffee right there. Why do you have to go pay six bucks for a coffee? She says, that doesn't taste good. Oh, and you call me weird because I don't like to shake my soda. You won't drink Maxwell House garage coffee. I mean, I guess, I guess it is a difference. When we go through things that, how we respond to worship, I want to give you just this picture of with the cart and with the wheels off, with the wheels on and with the wheels off. And I, I say this, letting the wheels off, because I do think that God wants to allow our worship to have more freedom. And I know, so I grew up in, in a Pentecostal church all my life. And so um, I know sometimes when it's like, we need to let the wheels come off. You know, that whole, con- I mean, no one's ever said that in church before, but there's some churches like, don't say that, because they'll get crazy like right now, like, Wah! Like, I mean, just crazy breaks out. And, and, and so I get that. But, man, I think it's the God we serve deserves a little more than a high five. G- way to go, Jesus. Good job. I think the God we serve deserves a little bit of a it might get loud. It might seem a little different to you. It might not seem so normal to you. But we've got to let the wheels come off. And let me explain that, and we're going to close. Here's what they had with the wheels on. When they had the wheels on, they had ignorance, familiarity, and assumption. When they had the, they had the cart and they, they were bringing it in on the cart, which, by the way, remember this. When you put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, it's following an ox. The presence of God should never follow anything. Nothing leads the, culture doesn't lead the presence of God. God is not affected by culture. Get your God off an ox cart. If you think, well, God gave vision and dream. I I just spoke to a group of pastors this past week. I felt the Lord just say to them, don't change the goalpost. Because sometimes we go through difficult places and things, and it's like, oh, well, it's hard. We we were dreaming big dreams for God, but we didn't see COVID. We didn't see this. God did. And when he gave you that dream, don't change the goalpost. You're quit. Don't get your God off an ox cart. Your God's not following culture. Like, oh, I was going to do something, but oh, COVID hit. Oh, no, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Get your God, can I just say it straight up? Get your God from the backside of an animal and let your God be in the place of honor and highest praise. Don't let culture or circumstance and things direct the, the, the God that we serve. And so they put him on the 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 ox cart, and here's the first thing with the wheels on, but we have ignorance, and here's what ignorance is. We just, we, we operate with ignorance, and we don't know the full meaning of why we do something. We're not doing it with the full understanding. 
Um, you remember we said last week, the problem that we have sometimes is we think, and just thinking by itself. And, and, and so here is David, he just thought. And so just, hey, put it on an ox cart. And so there was ignorance. He didn't understand the meeting. There was also familiarity. There's a danger when you become so familiar with the things of God that you lose the sacredness of it. There needs to be this sacredness. He is a holy God. Abinadab uh, had the, the, the Ark of the Covenant for 20 years, and so his sons grew up around it. There's a danger sometimes when we just get used to something. And within America, we, we are not a Christian nation. We are a post-Christian nation. But there's pockets of Christianity that we're comfortable with, and I want to challenge us. American Christianity does not necessarily mean kingdom Christianity. Um, that's just familiar. Well, it's Sunday. Just going to go. Here, here's the, the, the ox cart was meant for work. Here's the last one. The last one is assumption. And the assumption is, and the reason I said this is because I'm sure you asked the question. Um, Uzzah reached out and touched the ark to stable it, and God struck him dead. And my thought was, God, he was just trying to help, right? And the Lord said, that's the problem. Anytime you think I need help. God said, that, that is the, that's the very problem right there. Who are you to assume that I need your help? And I went back and read it, and if you look at it, it never said the cart stumbled. It never said the ark shifted. It said the ox stumbled. And just because the ox stumbled doesn't mean the ark isn't powerful enough to hold itself in place. So I just assumed the ark needed my help. And God said, no. Because the moment you think I need your help, the moment you think I need your help is the moment what you're doing is what you're worshiping and no longer worshiping the one who you do it for. You begin to worship the thing you do. Because here's the thing, when we look at sacrifice, the, the cart ultimately is meant for work. Anytime your work, anytime your worship turns into work is a dangerous thing. Now, I know it's connected to sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 13 gives us this scripture that says that we're to bring the sacrifice. He says, therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. But that sacrifice of praise, I used to think, and I needed a corrective lens, because I used to think things like, oh, God, I'm too tired. This was the big one for me. Uh, back in the day when we had Sunday night church, anybody grow up in church like I did? We had Sunday night church. There were some Sunday nights, I'm like, Jesus, why can we not just stay home tonight? Okay, I was the only one that thought that, and I'm not godly. Anyway, <laughs> uh, there, there were moments, and I would come to sometimes with this attitude of like, well, I'm bringing a sacrifice of praise. In fact, I'd come to some Sunday night services, and I was the young, you know, at that time a youth pastor, but even growing up in a church, and sometimes the pastor would get up and say, oh, I know we're tired, but let's bring God a sacrifice of praise. And I'd be like, yay, uh, you know, I'm tired. I'm going to give God a sacrifice of praise. The problem with that is this, oh, God, look what I'm doing for you. The sacrifice of praise doesn't emphasize what I do. The sacrifice of praise emphasizes how much he's worth it. If the emphasis is what on, on what I do, I missed it. The reason it's a sacrifice of praise is not because it's hard for me to do. It's a sacrifice of praise because he's worth every piece of it. Amen. Jesus sacrificed his life for us. And you could say because it was hard for him to do. 
um, it was hard for him to go through, but don't you think he knew that he was gonna rise again? Uh, yeah, because he said it. He said it. He said, tear this body in three days, come back. Tear these buildings down in three days. He says to his disciples, I'm gonna come back. So Jesus didn't do this. Big money, big money. Hope this works, hope this works. Really laying down a lot for you, God. Hope this comes out. No, his sacrifice was not, boy, I'm doing a big job. His sacrifice is, they're worth it. That's what sacrifice is. And so what I want to encourage us is sacrifice does not first look at what I give. Sacrifice first goes to he's worth it. And when it's connected to he's worth it, that's where worship becomes light and easy. But when worship is, oh, now I got to fast. Now I got to, oh, Lord, it's Sunday and I, want, I could have I slept in another hour on top of the hour that I got last night. And, but man, I'm here giving God worship because... If you come because you have to, there's <laughs> somebody like, well, then I won't come. All right, I can't argue with that. <laughs> but how many know that it's altogether different when it's not this, oh, I got to go, but now I was glad when they said unto me. There's, there's this, this shift, and, and worship team's coming because we're done. Okay, let me, uh, let me give you this scripture, Isaiah 29, 13. Isaiah 29, 13 says, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by root or mechanical um, repetition. Literally, the cart is a mechanical device. When they put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, it was mechanical going through the motions. How many know we can get good at going through the motions? But when we let the wheels come off, it becomes altogether different. Now, if my wife said to me, I need you to say you love me. And I say, but I told you yesterday. And then she says, okay, well, I need to hear it at least three times a day. Okay. I love you. One. Love you. Two. Love you. Three. Whoo, quota met. I'm done. How many know... That doesn't speak to a healthy relationship because I'm doing something, but my heart is not in it. You know the kind of relationship I have with that woman? The kind of relationship I have with that woman is I hear her when she talks, and she'll say things of what she likes or what she's thinking about and what she might do or what she's thought about doing, and I've heard those things at times, and then at certain moments, I have bought her something, and she'll say, why'd you buy that for me? And I'll say, remember that time you said, she said, I know, I didn't think you were listening. Oh, you got my ear because you got my heart. And I look for ways to show you how much I think of you and how much you mean to me. I look for those moments. Why? Because you've got my heart. I don't just have your ring. Oh, I can still get it off. Good, okay. I, <laughs> I'm scared for a moment. Like, uh, I, I, I don't just have her ring. I've got her heart. If this is all this is, signed a paper, that's my wife. I come home every night. Well, that's just because that's where I live, and it's just where she is. And No, that, she's got my heart. And when our heart is engaged in worship, how many know the wheels come off? I start looking. I mean, I'm serious 
And my wife and I, someone said to us one time, we were doing some planning, and uh, they said, oh, but that's Valentine's Day, and I'm sure you guys are going to want to go out. And Joey and I are like, nah, we're good. I'm like, oh, you guys don't celebrate Valentine's Day. We said, no, we don't, uh, because we celebrate Valentine's every week. We used to, when we were younger, we could only go out once a month. But now we go out every week. And every week I sit down at a table somewhere across from her, and we talk and we spend time together. She's my favorite person to spend time with because she's got my heart. And I look for ways. Like I'm traveling. And some of you are like, you're just foolish like that. No. You do something different when your heart's involved. And I'll leave notes for her. And she will say to me, she's like, you realize you make me feel like I need to do the same thing for you. I'm, that's not why I'm doing it. She has said to me before, because I'm, I'm more poetic. I write. And so I'll write things for her. I, I wrote her one year of 40. I wrote to our kids a 40-day journal using words that their mom says. And I wrote a devotional of all the words and things that connect to their mom. And I wrote a 40-day journal for my kids to grow in their walk with Jesus and remember how strong and who their mom is. I write, that's who I am. And she's like, but I can't do that. That's not what you have to do. But you've got my heart and I just come up with ways that I wanna just express it to you. And someone else could look at that and say, that's over the top, that's dumb. No, no, that's okay. I didn't ask you to do what I do. Do what God's put in your heart to do. If he's got your heart, I'm going to find ways to worship him. And here's what David, David the second time, he's like, oh no, we did this by routine. We're not doing it that way this time. This time, I'm going to worship him with pleasure and a sacrifice of not, oh, this is what we have to do, but a sacrifice of this is my joy and my pleasure. And this time, David, here's what he happened. Got stopped in his steps, in his tracks. He lost control and he took a risk. I wonder if our worship would reach a place that the wheels would come off and we get stopped in our tracks. When was the last time you just had to take a praise break because you were in work, you were in the car, you were somewhere, and the pre- you just were reminded of the presence of God. And just in a moment, you didn't need a song, you didn't need, a, you didn't need anything, just you in the presence of God. And right where you were, you just began, God, I thank God you're so good. When was the last time you just had a praise break in the middle of something? Because he's got your heart. David stopped in his tracks. They took six steps. We're going to stop. We're going to make a sacrifice. Then it says he worshiped with all his might. He lost control. And when he lost control, we think of losing control like, whoa, I can't help myself. That's not losing control. Losing control is I'm giving everything and I can't get it back. I'm putting everything I have into this and I can't get it back. It's connected to a drink offering. How many know that when you pour a drink offering out before God, when you pour a drink offering out, how many know you're not getting that back? You, you can't pour it on the ground and then get it back out of the ground. No, you're pouring it out and you're saying, you're worth it all. And it's not what I get back. It's because my joy and my pleasure is to pour it out to you. I'm going to lose control over what's mine because it's all yours. That's losing control. Now, I grew up, it got crazy sometimes. Like, you know, lose control is the first moment. Like, oh, look out. Sister Lulu going to run the aisle and it's going to get crazy right now. I mean, I knew I was in a good church service. Where I grew up, somebody in the back would yell, Sister Lulu, run the aisle. Sister Lulu, run the aisle. Like, here we go. 
was like, it got real good because Sister Lulu would run the aisle and she couldn't run. She, okay, never mind. This is a picture of myself. And it get exciting. And I think it's cool to get excited. We need to get excited. But it's more than just getting excited. It's pouring it all out. Because if all we do is get excited, that's called a pep rally. And you know what a pep rally is? I hope we can make it. I was at my nephew's football game yesterday. He plays for Millersville University. Starting offensive lineman. And they lost. And the cheerleaders are like, we're the best. We're going to win. I'm like, no, no, you're the score. You're not winning. This is... Sometimes we treat that like God, like maybe we'll make it. Maybe we will. No, the God I serve is not I got to build myself up and hope. No, the God I serve is seated in high places. He is the God of all. He's worthy of it all. He's the God who deserves my highest praise. I'm letting the wheels come off and I'm going to give him the highest praise that I've got. It might get loud. I might dance. That's ugly. I don't even know how to dance. Now she can dance. And there are times I'm like, oh, I, I might jump. No, that. I'll do this Lord I love you Lord (laughs) but he deserves our praise and here's the last one he he took a risk and here's the risk he worshipped and he took off his priestly robe you know what he worshipped with his or he took off his kingly robe he worshipped with his priestly robe and what the priest robe or what that signifies his garment it's the closest thing to him it's the closest thing touching his skin And it identifies the priest as being worthy to go into the presence of God. And what he's saying is, God, I'm worshiping not with what I have and who I am, my titles and who I am. I'm worshiping with you being the closest thing to me. And the only way I have access is because of what you've done for me. And so I'm worshiping with all of my might. I'm stopping in my tracks. I'm worshiping with all of my might. And I'm worshiping and taking a risk with just my priestly garment on. And you might say, you look like a fool. And his wife did. Oh, but if you knew what my God did for me, you'd let the wheels get off of your worship. And you'd start giving him some praise. I wonder. I was at the football game again yesterday and someone in the back row, the ref, didn't call timeout or didn't give timeout quick enough. And so the team that we were rooting for, they lost some time on the clock as if it was going to help. Anyway, you give a timeout, they lost a couple seconds. Some guy at the top of the stands is like, give them their time back. Give them their time back. I'm like, you're crazy. But you guess what everybody else did? people up there or people began to hear that guy yelling at the ref give them their time back you know what other people did give them their time back give them their time back you know why because instead of looking and saying wow he's a weirdo I wonder instead of saying boy he let the wheels off boy he's crazy I wonder if there's someone who instead of saying look at that and he starts saying God you're worthy I wonder if there's anyone else in the stands who'll say I'll agree with that and I'll worship because he's worthy of my praise he deserves life is there anybody who says I'll join in with that I'm gonna give him praise he's worthy of everything I've got and I'm gonna let the wheels off I'm gonna let the wheels come off I'm gonna shout I'm gonna dance I'm gonna clap I'm gonna declare he is worthy of it all some of you want to start dancing right now I know it and you know what that's totally fine because they're going to sing this song we're going to leave and we're going out of here dancing because the God we serve deserves the highest praise he deserves everything it's not good job Jesus good job high five Jesus no he deserves all of our praise and 
so I'm going to dance with all my might. I don't even know how to dance. I'm going to pour it out. I'm going to give him everything I've got because he deserves it all. Is there anybody who agrees with that?